You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's podcast is our final episode of Season 3 and Year 3 of the Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, Maybe as nature intended it, the Ottoman History Podcast, like many things that are beautiful in this world, was conceived in the spring. We'll be on a short hiatus for the next month as we uh, revamp our podcast for Season 4. But in the meantime, we have one last episode to offer, and I think it's a good way to finish out the year. The topic today is children's histories. And we're going to be focusing on the Ottoman Empire, but we're going to also speak a little more broadly about what it means to study childhood and what it means to write the histories of children. Our guest today is Dr. Nazan Maksudian, an assistant professor of history at Kemerburgaz University in Istanbul. Her forthcoming book, entitled Orphans and Destitute Children in the Ottoman Empire, being published by Syracuse University Press, deals with the lived experience of Ottoman children during specifically the late Ottoman period and through the World War I period. So one of the principal ways in which her scholarship may differ from other scholarship on childhood is that it is focused more on, of course, as we said, the lived experience of the child rather than the image of the child. So without further ado, Dr. Maksudian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about Ottoman children and historicizing childhood in the Ottoman Empire, I want to historicize childhood more broadly. And my first question is actually probably a question that a lot of my peers have as well. It's certainly a question that my mom has, which is, you know, when does childhood end? I'm 29 years old. I'm still a student. (laughs) Basically, by received definitions from the late 19th, early 20th century, I'm still a child. And of course, I mean that as, as a joke, but in fact, it points to the fact that our definitions of childhood are often in flux and refer to different things in different times. Yeah. So could you maybe give a brief couple minute in- overview of the development of the study of childhood in general, both in Europe and outside of Europe? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very big question and it's very difficult to answer. So, I mean, usually the historians, I mean, those who work on children and childhood, they usually stick to the legal legal definition you know it's like there is something called the puberty there is something called coming of age etc i mean we can always use these categories and usually when you're studying you have an ad hoc limit you say okay for me it's 18 for me it's 17 but as a lived experience, you're right. I mean, sometimes it ends earlier than that. When you get married at the age of 13, then you're no longer a children because you have afterwards a child, etc. So it's very social. It's very difficult. And in today's, I mean, present day political situation, apparently when you participate in a political activity, you're no longer a child you become politicized. So this is um, this is an interesting differentiation that I want to make in my work as well. I mean, can children be political actors? And if they are, they're not seen as children despite their age. So this is an interesting uh, topic. But And and, and I, you're referring to the recent events with uh, Berkin Elvan, who was in a coma for nine months after 
uh, being struck with a gas canister during the Gezi Park protest last summer. He passed away a few days ago. We're recording in, in March right now. And uh, yes, we've had statements indicating though he was a teenager that because he was even close to a political space that he's somehow adult, um, coming from some of the opposition, obviously, of the protests. So, so these questions are relevant for today. Yeah, I mean, um, this, this is always an issue for the political situation, but I mean, we can enumerate the examples. We have this like Manisa youngsters case, which is older, you might not know mm-hmm. it. You, we also had the case of Kurdish children throwing stones to the police. Are they children? Are they not? You know, it's always uh, dependent on the situation. But maybe we, we should go back to the historiography and sure. what, I mean, how it all happened. Um, well, this study of childhood as a concept is like a 60s thing you know there is this like famous work of Philip Aries centuries of childhood and there he is trying to like determine a date when children are treated as a specific category of human being but this was criticized so much and now people argue that well back in time in the Roman Empire as well, there was a concept of childhood. So it's not something discovered. So this discovery of childhood theory is not supported anymore, I right. would say. I mean, more precisely, I think maybe what historians have been doing is undoing or untying the baggage of our very, very narrow conception of childhood in the present by looking at what childhood meant in different times and different places. I mean, it's certainly true that in 18th century with this like romanticist movement, childhood and innocence has been like put together and we have always this like image of children as innocent, passive, beautiful, lovely creatures. Mm -hmm. But this, of course, just like freezes the personality, the agency, all that is human in a child and just makes it into a doll. So, I mean... Historians of children and youth, I mean, me included, we're trying to say that it's not only that. Children do more than being like little dolls. Absolutely. And in part, this, this comes out of a, a broader movement against child labor, against all of these institutions that were suddenly deemed uh, you know, inappropriate, perhaps in a more industrialized concept, whereas apprenticeship and such practices were present in like every society on the planet where children would work under a master and gradually come into adulthood and thereby into their craft as well. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I mean, I want to stress that children are like legitimate actors. We have to treat them seriously. We have to take their actions into consideration. But also children need protection. Right. That's for sure. And that blurs the entire thing. It's not like another group of subordinates. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean... There are subordinated groups because of discriminatory ideas. But children are like subordinates because they need protection as well. Yeah, I think that really comes through in legal social history when we're dealing with, for example, women who are 14 years old, um, but but married or have children and come up in various court cases. And, and certainly how to deal with that issue. They're certainly in a vulnerable place because of their age, yet at the same time engaged in certain behaviors that today would be considered adult so I guess 
all of that points to what you're trying to do, which is that we need to write history that kind of has children's voices. Understanding that experience of vulnerability and the, the special aspects of childhood, but through their own eyes. Exactly. I mean, we need to listen to them, actually. I mean, we adults have ideas of, you know, conceptions just in the ideal level. Mm -hmm. But in the lived experience, it's entirely something else. I mean, my study on the orphanages showed that life is not only about Foucault. Some of these boys and girls were really happy being there. Uh -huh. And it was, an, it was fortunate for them to be accepted into one of these like orphanages, although the concept of orphanage for us is a nightmare. Right. Or, you know, we assume that little girls getting married are abused and used, etc. But we also have examples of love affairs beginning early and it, the marriage was done, I mean, as a love affair. So we have to ask these individuals... Right. And it's actually quite complementary to Foucault's work if we don't read it in too caricatured and rigid a form that, you know, of course, if we just view the structures, not just children, all historical actors are ultimately passive agents. But of course, Foucault's history of sexuality talks about the undoing of those very types of relationships across generations, you know, love affairs and whatnot. And of course, also... Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is usually we don't do it two ways, as you said. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need the, the, the both directions. But I guess one of the problems we have is a problem of sources. Now, certainly all of the historical actors I've ever studied were at some point in their lives children, but it's kind of hard to access the child as child in the age of, of childhood. How do we do that? For, maybe you could talk about how, uh, before moving to the Ottoman Empire, how historians elsewhere have dealt with this issue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a very uh, difficult thing and it requires interpretation. I mean, even sociologists working, I mean, child developmentalists working with like, I mean, living children, they have difficulties because they don't want to push things. You know, it's a child subject. How can you talk to him, her, etc. But for historians, um, we have some... Um, interesting sources such as children's of own writing mm -hmm. you know in writing classes they are given certain homeworks and they're supposed to write about something there are many first world war histories i mean done by children's own productions like children's paintings children's writings um diaries very mm -hmm. rare but i mean these are some very valuable sources that we can use. Sure. I mean, but as we move closer to the present, there is a lot more there. But how, do, how, how, for example, would an early modern historian deal with the history of children? We have court records maybe that sometimes have scant mentions, but what else is there out there? How can we get to that? Yeah, people use a lot of uh, material culture, you know, toys, children's books, games, you know, all these well, but these are, of course, ideal stuff too. I mean, adults create these toys, these sure. books, etc. But it still represents a sense of children's lived experience. Because, I mean, as, a, as someone who is raising a child, I can see that what is available determines your children's activities, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not totally relevant. But as the child becomes a little bit older, then you might have 
records from the schools. But of course, as social historians of any kind, we always have more sources about bad stories than the good ones. Exactly. You know, they fight, they hit each other, something bad happens, they lose their parents, etc. Then you have some sources in courts, in schools, in government materials. But, you know, the good stuff, what they were doing when they were having fun... This is really, I mean, very difficult. Early modernists, they also work on paintings, but again, it's a representation of what was going on, but we cannot like uh, say, oh, it doesn't count. Of course it counts. As much as we use literature, we can use paintings too, but... Well, I think there's a lot there, and as, as you get to know, if you, as, you, as you begin to construct you know, the life of a child for a particular period and place in your head, you start to see how things that were mundane, historical uh, facts, maybe not specific to children, actually can help us tell the, the story of children. You know, what you were saying reminds me of a, a document we published in our blog, Tosu Zevrak, where we feature some primary sources from the Ottoman archives. It's a very interesting document about how during uh, holiday times, uh, I guess carnies, we could call them, or men who operate merry-go-rounds would go to neighborhoods and spin the children on merry-go-rounds and the children would have some pocket money to uh, go on the merry-go-round. This is the late Ottoman period. And um, this made it to the archives because the, these carnies were apparently circulating uh, songs uh, with the children, singing to them and even selling the lyrics, I guess, on pieces of paper. The papers were found among school children and these lyrics were... Uh, obscene they had the song actually was called yeah fala so uh, some song about i don't know it's a derogatory term anyway that's all i could get but the children want these it's not that it was you know from the schoolmaster's point of view this is a profane music is not for children but at the same time this shows the interface of i guess adolescent and adult society we could say yeah i mean we have to remember this book uh lord of the flies you know children are not just like little innocent creatures they do wicked stuff they're like us i mean Mm -hmm. adults they like obscenity they like to say bad words they fight you know they have all these things so we have to take these into consideration as well yeah absolutely and actually uh, we have to understand the relationship between the wicked stuff they do and the wicked stuff that's done to them and i think that's particularly relevant in your research um, because you're dealing with the topic of children during the last decades of the Ottoman period, which of course are a tumultuous time for children because many of them end up as orphans due to war uh, and massacres. Many of them are... um, Refugees. The economic makeup of the Ottoman Empire is changing and with urbanization, particularly in Istanbul, I guess, you have certain issues that crop up that maybe weren't as prevalent before. So it's a hard time for children. And um, in your, your book, you talk about the institutions that emerge uh, to deal with some of the issues that children face and, and what that means. Moving to a, uh, a discussion of the late Ottoman period, uh, I'd like to start by asking, you know, what was new in the late Ottoman period? What was new materially and what was new culturally? Because as we know, when, with issues of family and childhood, it's, all, it's always partially economic and structural, but there's also that cultural component. Yeah, that's the case. I mean, as I said, I don't think this discovery of childhood theory holds. That's one thing. But still, 19th century, we have this like, in 19th century Ottoman Empire, at least, it was earlier in other places, um, children started to take the attention 
of authorities, of state authorities. Uh, this is not actually because they were doing something different, but the state was interested in other things. I mean, first and foremost, it was becoming, well, more bureaucratized, more modernized. They had concerns. And one of these like biggest concerns was control, you know, controlling the cities, controlling family life, controlling education, more and more regulations. And this included children as well. So we were saying wicked children, wicked society. It was just the same. They thought that children, some children were a threat to the society and society was also a threat for the children. So they have to save the children and save the society. And this paternal paternalistic view isn't coming only from the state. Of course, the state plays a prominent role in that, but it's more broadly a sort of sensibility that's coming. That's true. It's a, it's a middle class sensitivity as well. I mean, the, the idea was becoming more and more established that children should be at home or in school and the streets are not the places for children. And so since I mainly worked on uh, destitute children, this was the major issue. So what is going to happen to these children? They're a threat to themselves and to the society. So what we should do? And this like material and cultural changes that you were talking about were I think mostly the issues of urbanization and having a more um, reliable control, order, security in especially urban places. I mean, most of the issue was something urban, but the state was also controlling the family, family size, marriage affairs, you know, and all these ended up touching children's lives from one way or the other. And so you mentioned this growing sentiment that the streets or the city aren't the place for the child, that the place for the child is the school or the church or the mosque or the uh, home, and they shouldn't be out and about in the public, so to speak. Of course, here we must find a gendered aspect. Agreed, it's both about boys' morals and girls' morals, but they're treated in different ways. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, boys were, when they were out, they were seen as gangs, you know, vagabonds. They could like rob you, hit you. I mean, create like insecurity on the streets, etc. But for girls, it was more about like morality, concerns of prostitution, obscenity. They could be like, I mean, badly treated or they can just like ruin the morals of the society. This is what I found really, I mean, girls outside were always about morality. And so the new institutions that we see acting on children or working with children, we can say, um, all attempt to address the need to keep children out of this sort of dangerous or corrupt uh, public sphere in a variety of ways. Now, of course, in Ottoman society, there were already ways of dealing with the issue of orphan. It's, it's, not, it's, it's like a universal historical phenomenon. Wherever there is war and chance and families have problems, there you have orphans. Um, could you talk about some of the uh, pre-existing practices before this late 19th century period and how they relate to what emerged at that time? Yeah, we know that... Uh state had this like older habit of supporting uh, orphans, you know, 
either in the form of uh, granting stipends to wet nurses or those who adopted the children. Well, adoption, not like legal adoption, but just taking a child into your house was possible and it's been practiced for like a long time. So many households had non-kin members in their houses, like either male or female, mostly female, but they were also like taking boys to their households. And the state, I mean, depending on the household, of course, state suggested some form of assistance, at least for two years, like until the breastfeeding period is over, something like that. So this was an old phenomenon. But we see that with the 19th century, there is this tendency of institutionalizing the stipend business. Mm -hmm. So instead of giving stipends, I mean, assigning stipends to these uh, kids who are not supported, state first uh, decides to support vet nurses and not the babies. And then wet nursing becomes another question. Oh, they're not good. They're abusing their situation, etc. Then there's this different uh, attempts of organizing institutions, orphanages, foundling asylums, etc. And having these uh, children in need under the roof of an institution and not just distributing the eight. And the approach of these institutions is a bit different than what's there before because, of course, you mentioned bringing child into the home. It's not necessarily as another child, but rather perhaps for labor or to, to be a servant to help keep up the house. Or There's, there's a number of ways that these children could be, quote-unquote, put to use or employed within the family context. And, of course, in these institutions, the goal is not for individuals to necessarily be collecting money and assistance while at the same time essentially putting children to work? Well, actually, it's, uh, it involves that as well. I mean, most of these like orphanages were like um, workshops too. You had like mm-hmm. carpentry workshops, shoemaking workshops, and they, many of them were also tied to this like small factories, small military factories or workshops or bigger places as well they were also used as workforce they Mm. were um the main issue was turn these idle vagrant boys and girls into productive labor i mean for boys it was more about production and for girls it was more about learning to become a servant or a housewife so the institutions were also using the children in a similar way. So maybe we could talk a little bit about those girls. In your book, one of the uh, figures that plays a prominent role is that of the best leme, the the girl who is being looked after, literally fed by a family or some group. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, again, it's an old practice. We know that it's been practiced in like... as as old as like 15th, 16th century, we have records from um, sigils. So we know that it's an old practice. But again, 19th century changes something with uh, some sort of disgust uh, of slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, some yeah. middle classes were feeling some form of shame 
of having too much slaves, I mean, domestic servants around the house. So, and paid servanthood was not so popular as well. So they were trying to find a solution of not having a slave, but also not paying for this mm -hmm. form of job. So they were uh, adopting, not really adopting, but having foster girls in their households uh, to perform these uh, jobs. But there was also a social um, social sensibility, seeing that most of these girls were uh, really not only working as servants, but they were also sexually abused. Yeah. So this uh, increased the number of uh, articles or like lit literary pieces written on these like form of uh, life. So it became an issue for uh, for the intellectuals as well. What kind of an institution is that? It's becoming immoral, etc. That fuels the desire to establish formal institutions for taking care of. These girls who may, in the in the end, actually end up being servants, but at least to sort of regulate the practices and abuses that are associated with that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there has been, for example, after the Crimean War, there was this discussion uh, that in Trabzon, many of these like refugee orphans were taken into households, and the governor was saying that, well, we better have an institution because in these households, we don't know what's going to happen to mm -hmm. these children. Absolutely. So it, there was a concern of that too. But those people who were saying that they're concerned, they were also having their own Islamists too. Right. Well, I mean, that's the interesting question I think we have to deal with, which is these institutions emerge, but to what extent do the longer standing practices continue to be the prevailing norm? So I want to kind of ask a question of scale to lead us into a little more uh, conversation about these institutions, how many uh, orphans or foundlings or whatever we want to call them are in the care of either government or religious institutions during the last years of the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, I would say I'm in just the top of the iceberg because as, as far as we know, most of the children were actually orf orphans, at least half orphans, you know, like one parent alive, one dad. But usually in these situations, you don't need an institution. You have an uncle, you have an aunt, it's just solved. Exactly. Uh, and you have adoption mechanisms, it's fine. Uh, but in terms of institutional mechanisms, well, what I found is that in starting from 1860s, you, you have these islahanes, what is called islahanes, of the I mean, I would call them the or the first orphanages of the Ottoman Empire. There were about 30 of them, and each of them had about 100 boys and girls. I mean, a few of them were mixed. So and that's this, in Istanbul when you say 30? No, no, no. This was all around the empire. I mean, in all provincial centers, you know, in Damascus, in Badat, in Izmir, you had an mm -hmm. Islahane. So there were like 33 of them. But missionaries as well, they had huge orphanages, especially the American missionaries after the Hamidian massacres, they opened like 80 orphanages. And they, they themselves uh, said that they looked after 10,000 orphans. We don't know. Catholics, they had a few, not so much, but this is practically it. Um, but the interesting thing for me is that 1860s is a late development so 
the starting question for me, I mean, long time ago, was why so late to regulate, to institutionalize orphan care. Um, but then other things came and so the interesting thing is that it became really late and very soon after, I mean, in 1920s or so, Darulegeze uh, directors mm -hmm. realized that it's not a good solution to have in-house orphans or babies. It's much better to foster them out. So it's a very uh, short-lived experience and they quickly came to the conclusion that institutionalization of these children is not a good solution. So, uh, And so you mentioned the missionaries. Uh, there's an expectation, of course, within if we know a little bit about the social makeup and, of course, the political makeup of the Ottoman Empire, that particularly when it comes to minority communities, Christians and, and, and the like, uh, there's an expectation that orphans or needy children are going to be uh, cared for within the community. That is an expectation from the community itself, but also a general consensus about the you know, multi-confessional makeup of the Ottoman Empire. That being said, we know in the case of schools with missionaries and particularly communities that maybe even themselves don't have the means of caring uh, for destitute children, we find a little competition over who's going to get the kids. And even later in the Ottoman period, we hear stories of like many Christian children ending up in a Muslim uh, orphanage and being, quote-unquote, uh, converted, I guess, through education and a little bit of force. So can you explain a little bit the tension that's going on there? Yeah, that was the issue about the 19th century as well. I mean, I said the children became, uh, took the, started to, took the take the attention of authorities. This included communal authorities as well, because children were also seen as opportunities. You know, to have children, it means that you are investing in your future imagined community. You know, in this like the nationalist understanding of the term. So uh, all communal leaders were more interested in now well, education means belonging. So if these children are educated in Protestant institutions, then they might end up converting to this new uh, religion. So, and for, uh, for Ottoman institution, this was also the question, you know, after the Adana massacres of 1909, you have this Jamal Pasha's Darul Eytam Osmani, Ottoman orphanage, which is a name unheard of, you know, you have like names of uh, Ottoman institutions are not usually Osmani, it's like, you know, Hamidiye schools, that different, I mean, or Humayun, you have the Humayun, but Osmani is something interesting. And then here, the same discussion arises, okay, but if the language, spoken language is going to be Turkish, and if no religion, religious instruction is not is allowed, so what is going to happen in these institutions? It was always a question of identity and belonging. And then uh, children's education uh, became uh, interpreted as a form of kidnapping. You know, our children are kidnapped by the Catholics. And in early uh, 1900s, for instance, you have this whole issue of abandoned children, kidnapped by the Greek patriarchate, 
oh no, they're kidnapped by Darulajese. No, the Catholics kidnapped them. You know, this like little babies who were actually, I mean, forsaken members, you know, their parents don't want them. They just throw them into the street. But then all of a sudden they become so important for the community as, as nobodies. And actually they don't know if they're a member of their community or not, but sure. they still fight for the baby. And, and we can see how this mentality is going to play out for children during the World War One period when we we see a sort of a, a breakdown of society on a level that hadn't been witnessed before in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but before getting to that, you know, I think it's important to reiterate that these children aren't just children. Some of them do grow up. I mean, a lot do unfortunately die. Mortality is much higher for you know, in the orphanages and whatnot than the base rate. But, um, you know, we didn't mention older practices like devshirme or the quote-unquote levy of boys, making boys into civil servants and stuff, but uh, these kids who end up in Islahane, some of them can grow up to be uh, important officials even, uh, kind of, there are examples of uh, famous uh, individuals from the late Ottoman period who themselves were some kind of orphan. Uh, so, uh, could you give us a little sense of what kind of world the destitute children are inhabiting, what their lives are like on the day-to-day, and how it shapes, and maybe how that experience shapes a different individual? Is there something you could say to that? Well, in terms of, I mean, those in the institutions, we have a sense of what they were doing on a regular day. I mean, their education, where they were... Eat, I mean, what they were eating, even their daily lives. I mean, they weren't, uh, their education were mostly vocational, not, you know, basic, uh, mm-hmm. just basic education. Okay, they can read and write, but just two hours a day. And the rest of the day was vocational education. They had special uniforms. They had a number, each of them. And they when they were going out, they had going out clothing but they weren't supposed to mingle with other kids, etc. And there's a, I mean, very detailed description of their punishment too. So if they do something not really nice, they're not given food for a day. If they do it twice, they are not given food for three days. If they do it the third time, then they're put into a cell for a week, etc. Well, the punishment was quite harsh, uh, but this is for... uh, sounds like the regulation although it's gender free the regulation seems to be written for boys but i mean i'm not sure um do these happened, boys end up on like a military track or what happens to them when they become adults well many of them uh were actually placed in military institutions from the start i mean many orphan uh boys were not sent to Islahanis, but they became, uh, I mean, apprentices in uh, Topane, Yamire, and, you know, Darpane, etc., in all these, like, uh, places where they can learn a trade and uh, become a member of this, like, military classes too. Uh, but also, we know that those who were trained in crafts opened their own shops because the state was helping them with some money etc but also another interesting discussion is that none of this um, orphan education discussion 
um, included agricultural education, you know, a modern agricultural perspective. And especially Americans were regretting it so much in like 1913, something like that. They were saying, okay, we raised these carpenters like for 20 years, but this, this country does not need so many carpenters, but they need to know agriculture in a more like technological modernized way. And this is what we lack. And this uh, regret is also apparent in the Ottoman administration and they start sending agricultural apprentices to Germany during war because, I mm -hmm. mean, they are aware that they should modernize agriculture. But the vision at the time, you know, mid-19th century was only focusing on crafts and, you know, uh, trades, etc. So, Dr. Maksudian... You know, this is the last episode of season three. Uh, the second episode of season three was actually uh, an interview with Yasemin Gencher, who's currently writing a uh, dissertation on the concept of childhood and its role in the formation of like an early Republican identity. And there's a lot of imagery in the early Republican era that portrays the entire Republic metaphorically as a child. And of course, indeed that which became the Republic are, is precisely those who had grown up and were children during the Ottoman period. So um, to get an understanding of what the late Ottoman period meant for the Republic, specifically through the lens of childhood, maybe could you finish with some statements about the World War I period? Yeah, I mean, f first observation, I think... Uh Republic being a child, you know, represented as a child, I think uh, includes not the Republican elites, but the people, sure. the citizens, you know, they're like, uh, they're seen immature. And I think this relates to this understanding of uh, for the people, despite the people kind of uh, understanding. Yes. Um, as for you know, seeing late Ottoman background as your childhood, uh, I think there's a lot of denial as well in the early Republic. You know, all the Republican reforms, especially the, the change of the, uh, the the Latin alphabet, it's all about, rem I mean, forgetting your childhood, your past. Yeah. We know that in a in a generation, we're unable to read our grandparents' diaries, for instance. This is why a lot of sources are lost because people just throw it into their, like, into fire and they got warm with it. This is something, I mean, this is why we don't have personal archives. This is why we don't have personal sources because people thought it's useless because they couldn't read it. And it's a shame. Uh, it's, it's a pity. Um... But there is this very good book uh, called, uh, it's an oral history project, Cumhuriyette Çocuktular. It's, uh, it's a project by Mine Tan. It's a book now mm -hmm. by Bozci uh, University Press. It's about those who were children in the earlier years of the Republic and also later, I mean, during the war, during yeah. the independence war, etc. And they tell their experiences, their daily life in school, etc. It's it's a wonderful uh, source for us too because they talk to about a hundred uh, people. So you have different stories, rural stories, urban stories. It's very interesting. Mm. 
about the First World War, what else can I say? Uh, well, it's my new project that is on children, Ottoman children during the First World War. So I'm trying to come up with different uh, scenarios, different plots that children are the leading actors. So one story is this uh, orphan children sent to Germany to work in apprentices. Another story is going to be about delinquency, those children in the cities uh, involved in petty crime, you know, mm -hmm. to survive, to help their families, something like that. The other story is going to be about uh, intercommunal fights between Muslims and non-Muslims, just to show how children assumed adult roles because of what was going on around them. Yeah. And the other part is going to be about an Armenian child's life story and different, um, different possibilities of what happened to certain typical uh, Armenian children after 1915, you know, just... And this is the story, I mean, when you said that the, the, the Republic was essentially trying to forget its childhood, it's a really powerful way of describing what happened during World War I, actually. And the story of uh, Armenians who, of course, with time, either forget they're Armenian or kind of suppress the fact they're Armenian, taken as children into families or even, in some case, married, for example, to a Muslim and have these stories. These, these stories are only recently... Um, coming to the fore within, you know, more popular discourses in Turkey and are really um, serving to highlight the way in which the break with the Ottoman past was not a political trauma, but really was a social trauma and one that's experienced on the level of children, which, you know, we haven't had, talk, have, had time to talk about the violence of the war, the genocide, but these things, war, communal violence, massacre, deportation, genocide, all of these are unique in some way to us in that they, they aren't just things that happen between men, but they affect vulnerable people as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean you put it in a wonderful way. I mean, these, uh, these, I mean, very shocking stories are just subsumed, you know, put like in an, un, I mean, subconscious way, peop, everybody knows, but nobody brings it mm -hmm. to the surface. This is also, well, we can say kind of pathology. Right. Of well, it's, it's like suppressed childhood trauma in a sense. And, and that's what makes certain acts of violence different in some way for us, that, that they touch children who are more susceptible to trauma and more vulnerable. Well, yeah, I mean, it's suppression of trauma. It's, it's a good way to put it. And I mean, and that, that really makes a strong argument. You know, we started with this talk about childhood and maybe some people had come to the podcast thinking that, you know, childhood is a niche topic in the study of family, say in Europe or in this case in the Ottoman Empire. But we see how much understanding the lives of children comes to bear on our understanding of really important and unfortunately under-discussed events in the history of the late Ottoman period. And I want to thank you for coming and giving us a preview of uh, your research and talking about your book today. Yeah, I also thank you for inviting me and for your wonderful comments. Well, with this episode, we've brought a close to the end of season three. 
It's been a great season, our best yet, and you can check out all the episodes uh, that we have there. We've collected them on our new hosting for at on SoundCloud. Now, to give you a quick sense of what's coming in season four, we're going with a slightly new format. We're going to be bringing greater emphasis on history in general, moving out of our sort of area studies cage we've been operating in and trying to tell history through the Ottoman Empire rather than a, just history of the Ottoman Empire. We're also going to have some different kinds of episodes. We have an episode coming up on Echoes of the Ottoman Past, where we're going to be bringing some sounds from present-day Istanbul and talking about how they relate to the places and the sites of Ottoman Istanbul. We're going to have some conceptual episodes on conceiving different forms of geography and more theoretical episodes, but we've also got a lot of guests coming up from the field of Ottoman history, we have an interview coming up with Ken Shul about prisons in the Ottoman Empire, an interview with uh, Benjamin Fortna, who's written a lot on education and is very interested in the topic of children. We've talked today as well. We have some strange things coming up, like a podcast in Spanish between Emra Safa Gurkan and Oscar Aguirre Mandujano. That's going to be our first Spanish podcast. And we're welcoming, we're welcoming a new permanent host, Kaliapi Amigdalo. She's going to be talking particularly with a lot of Greek scholars and um, dealing with topics we haven't dealt with so much, architecture and space and whatnot. Lastly, I'll mention that we are changing our hosting, which means we're switching to a new podcast feed. We uh, apologize for the inconvenience, but it's very easy to switch your feed for those who are subscribing through iTunes or another service. You can find that on our website and we'll be sending out reminders in the coming month. Uh, That change is going to bring a, a higher sound quality to our podcast stream and uh, allow us to give an overall better experience. So while we apologize for the inconvenience, we hope that uh, you'll bear with us uh, and enjoy the uh, revamped Ottoman History Podcast that's coming in summer of 2014. Well, that's all of the uh, promotion I can do for this episode. One last time, Dr. Maksudian, thanks for being here. Thank you. For those who want to learn more about today's topic, you can visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We've got some background reading on the history of childhood in general and lots on the Ottoman Empire as well. You can also leave your comments and questions and get to our Facebook page where you can uh, reach out to the uh, now over 13,000 strong Ottoman History Podcast Facebook community. That's all for this episode. I want to thank you for listening and thank you for being with us throughout Season 3 of Ottoman History Podcast. We'll see you in about a month and until next time, take care.